You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, this is Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And today I'm talking about endocrine labs. Joining me is Dr. Marissa Kilberg, also from CHOP in the Division of Endocrinology. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. So endocrine is not my strong suit. So let's start with a refresher on the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPA access. So obviously, as the name states, it starts in the hypothalamus. But what's the sequence of hormones that we need to know here? So as you know, most of endocrine is a series of feedback loops. For the adrenal hormones specifically, we think back to the HPA axis, which involves the secretion of CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone from the hypothalamus, causing the release of ACTH, adrenocorticotropic hormone from the anterior pituitary, which then goes on to stimulate the adrenal gland to produce cortisol. Cortisol, being the final hormone in that cascade, then goes on to inhibit further release of ACTH and CRH, what we call negative feedback. So unless it is low, in which case we expect to see increased ACTH production. So if we want to investigate adrenal function, we look at cortisol and ACTH, but why do we need to check an AM level of cortisol? We're looking at both cortisol and ACTH to look at the relationship between the two and give us a sense of the patient's adrenal status, but we recommend an AM cortisol specifically because of the circadian rhythm that develops. We note that developing typically between about 6 and 12 months of age. We see that cortisol levels peak typically around 6 a.m. and then decline throughout the day. But another time that you might be able to detect what we call a sufficient cortisol level would be during illness, as the stress on the body does increase your hypothalamus and pituitary response, causing cortisol release outside of our typical diurnal rhythm. So illness will impact what we normally see and make it harder to interpret the tests? Actually, a little bit of the opposite. So if patients are ill or stressed, they would have increased cortisol levels. So that's why often if somebody is coming in in a time of illness and we're not sure about their adrenal status, for example, an acutely ill patient in the ICU, we always ask that they send off a cortisol level at that time, even if it's not the morning, because we hope that the stress would allow the body to go on and release the cortisol to help our body cope with the stress, really. Right, great. So tell us about the ACTH stimulation test. What does it prove and what are its pitfalls? Great question. So the low dose or one microgram ACTH stimulation test is a test we use commonly for the evaluation of adrenal insufficiency. We like this test a lot because it evaluates both central and peripheral parts of the axis. So just to go through and explain that a little bit more clearly, in this test, we give a small amount of synthetic ACTH called cosentropin, which is enough to stimulate the adrenal gland to produce cortisol, but not enough to stimulate an atrophied adrenal gland, so in the case of central adrenal insufficiency, to produce cortisol. So we like that this test 
helps us look at both central and primary, but the pitfall would be that it doesn't allow us to distinguish between the two. It also can be falsely reassuring in the setting of an acute onset of central adrenal insufficiency, because as I mentioned, we're kind of relying on that atrophy of the gland. So a postcraniopharyngioma resection, for example, right, closely following the surgery would not be an accurate test. If you want to truly rule out a primary disorder, the high-dose 250 microgram stimulation test will do just that. Again, having the potential to give you a false normal in central adrenal insufficiency. So for central adrenal insufficiency, the CRH stimulation test would be the more sensitive test. Outside of the scope of this talk, but just so you know, the high-dose stimulation test is also used to further understand disorders of adrenal steroid biosynthesis, such as congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Mm -hmm. And another hormone produced by the pituitary is growth hormone. So this is the hypothalamic pituitary somatotrophic axis. So help us explain where growth hormone acts in this pathway. There are many factors in the hypothalamus, including somatostatin and growth hormone releasing hormone, amongst others that control the release of growth hormone from the anterior pituitary. Growth hormone then goes on to influence multiple target tissues, including the kidney and the liver. But we primarily think about its impact on the liver, at least in terms of our assays, because it will then go on to produce IGF-1 and IGF-BP3. And IGF-BP3 is the primary binding hormone that binds IGF-1, so it binds about 80% of it. IGF-1 then goes on to have growth-promoting effects all throughout the body. So what's the best way for us to measure growth hormone? In neonates less than about 15 days of age, we can actually measure growth hormone itself. That's because at that time, there's tonic elevation. However, Outside of that, secretion is pulsatile and random, making measurement quite a challenge outside of stimulation testing. So our general recommendation is actually to obtain insulin-like growth factor 1, IGF-1, also known as somatomedin, and insulin-like growth factor binding protein 3. So IGF-1, IGF-BP3. Exactly. These are the laboratory measurements that we often use because these downstream products are more stable. I'll also say, though, that it's important to take into account the pubertal status of the patient as a child who's delayed in puberty might have appropriately lower levels of IGF-1 and IGF-BP3. Right. So low for age, but appropriate for pubertal status. So important for us to document their tanner staging when we're doing these tests. Absolutely. So in the workup of both precocious puberty and delayed puberty, you request things like LH, FSH, estradiol, and testosterone. Why do you recommend we do ultrasensitive pediatric assays? Great question. So the ultrasensitive assays are extremely important in pediatrics. As the name implies with them being ultra-sensitive, they detect smaller variations in hormone secretion, which often is not pertinent in adult laboratory studies, but can be very important in pediatrics. Using this more ultra-sensitive version allows us to detect the early onset of puberty. The adult assays would miss this. So once again, kids are not little adults, right? Very true. So whenever I think about thyroid disease, I have to remember, okay, when is TSH high or low and when is T4 high or low? So as a refresher, 
The pituitary makes TSH, which turns on the thyroid, which then makes T4 that turns off the pituitary. So when I'm measuring thyroid hormones, I know I get a TSH and a T4. Should I be doing a total T4 or a free T4? Great question. So we often talk about TSH and T4, but what we really want to measure, because what's important clinically, is the free T4. This is the bioactive portion that the body's actually experiencing. So in patients with low albumin, for example, you may have a low total T4, but the free portion is actually normal. In contrast, in patients with high proteins, for example, during pregnancy or patients on oral contraceptives, you may have a high total T4, or thyroxine, I should say, too, in case we switch between the two, but actually a normal free T4 because much of it is bound to the excess thyroid-binding globulin. Great. Thank you for making that distinction for me. So when I'm thinking about the thyroid, I remember that the pituitary makes TSH, which turns on the thyroid, and then makes... T4 or free T4, and that turns off the pituitary. So let's play a game of what's high and what's low, okay? So tell me if TSH or free T4 are high or low in these different scenarios. What a fun game. (laughs) (laughs) So hyperthyroidism, hyperthyroidism. So in hyperthyroidism, this is generally a primary disorder, and what I mean by that is it's the excess thyroid hormone is coming from the thyroid gland. So we expect to see high thyroxine or high T4 levels, free T4 being the the part that's measured. And this causes negative feedback on the pituitary, so we'd expect to see a low TSH. Great. So high T4, low TSH. What about primary hypothyroidism? In primary hypothyroidism, you'd expect to see low T4 levels since there's low production. The pituitary then secretes high levels of TSH, essentially asking the thyroid to make as much hormone as it possibly can. But I will say that for this reason, we often see a normal free T4. Because the TSH is doing its job? Exactly. At some point, we expect the thyroid to not be able to kind of meet those demands. But initially, uh, with the pituitary offering all this excess TSH, it's able to stimulate the thyroid enough to compensate. Interesting. So we may have to be persistent in following that lab if we have a high clinical suspicion. Absolutely. Okay. Secondary hypothyroidism. All right. So secondary, which would also be known as central hypothyroidism, you expect to see a low T4, free T4, or even low normal. Okay. So it can be within the normal range, but at the lower end of it. The TSH is typically low. I think that's how most people think of it, but it actually can be low, slightly high, or normal. Its secretion itself is just not normal. So this is a really important point because we should not be reassured about children who have a normal level of TSH and a low T4 when there is concern for a possible central process. Just some examples would be septo-optic dysplasia, trauma, midline defects. And these things you said could could produce more TSH? It could be high? Absolutely. We usually don't see robust high TSHs like we see with primary hypothyroidism. Like You wouldn't see a TSH of 20, 30, but we certainly see above normal. <laughs> That's very interesting. So we've been talking about TSH and T4, free or total, but what's the T3 part of this story? So I've heard about a T3 uptake test. When do I need that? 
Great question. So the T3 uptake test is a way to obtain a calculated measure of the free thyroxine. So basically, the lab measures the total T4, the total thyroxine level, and the thyroid binding globulin saturation. So how much of that protein is saturated. This is known as the uptake percent. We then go on to calculate a free thyroxine index based on these two things. So we will sometimes see patients that have a slightly low T4 on our CHOP assay, but a normal free thyroxine index. But at least at our institution, many providers prefer the T3 uptake test. Interestingly, it's also a less expensive test, again, just at our institution. If we're having a diagnostic concern, however, the gold standard test is always the free T4 by equilibrium dialysis. But in contrast to these other two ways of measuring that we get results generally the same day, this can take over a week to result. Hmm. We have a test in our institution that allows us to order just the TSH initially. And if that's abnormal, then it can reflex to adding on the T4. So in most cases, when we're screening someone for hypo or hyperthyroidism, usually in primary care, it's related to their growth. Is that a good approach to start with a TSH and then add on the T4 or T3 uptake if you need it? Absolutely. Generally, when we're screening these kids, we're thinking about a primary hypothyroidism. So we would expect to see that elevated TSH. And again, if that's abnormal, reflexing to a free T4 is the appropriate thing to do. I would give caution, though, if you're at all concerned about central hypothyroidism, because again, as I mentioned before, those numbers can be slightly low, low, normal, or even slightly high. So harder to interpret if you have a normal result from your TSH. Absolutely. But in primary hypothyroidism, that normal TSH would be very reassuring. So the other time that I think about thyroid is when I'm looking at the newborn screen. And sometimes I'll see an abnormal thyroid result and need to repeat it. But when and why is the age of the baby so important in interpreting this test? This is such an important question. So knowing the age of the baby is crucial to interpreting the newborn screen result because there's an associated postnatal TSH surge that can lead to levels up to 80 microunits per liter initially. This quickly declines over the next two days and typically to normal adult levels by about seven days of life. So typically newborn screens are sent at about 24 to 72 hours of life, and thus the laboratory reference ranges are based on this and appropriate for this time period. If you have an older baby, you really need to interpret the newborn screen results with caution as they may be called normal based on the reference ranges, but if the actual TSH level is greater than 5 to 10, I would say, you should be thinking twice about it. On the contrast, we also get false abnormals too as older babies are outside of the range of the newborn T4 surge. That increase in TSH that happens postnatally leads, of course, to an elevated T4 level. Um, So sometimes it can be the older babies in comparison with other children who are running on the same day could be lower and it would then reflex to TSH and come back to you. Uh, So the recommendation is really not to repeat a newborn screen at the later ages, but rather to do a serum test. That's a really important point. So the reference ranges on the newborn screen are set for the time period when the newborn screen is most often done. But kids who are getting their testing done later for some reason, which may be because they were in the NICU or they had a transfusion or something else that was going on, 
then we should use caution in interpreting those results and instead get a serum test instead of the newborn screen again. Absolutely. The other thing I would say too is uh, it's really important to know the newborn screen lab that you're using and what type of testing they are doing. So for example, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, which our institution is most familiar with, have a T4 primary test that reflexes to TSH. In Pennsylvania, it will reflex if you're either below their cutoff of six or if you're in the lowest 10% of individuals running that day. Others will have a primary TSH assay. Great. That's another good point for us to keep in mind. I always think of an abnormal newborn screen that I confirm with the serum test as a relative emergency, not not that they need to go to the ER, but they do need to see you in endocrinology rather soon. So what's the time frame for that? When should I have them follow up with you in clinic if I get an abnormal thyroid that makes me worried about congenital hypothyroidism? So time frame, I in one sense, will depend on the elevation that you see of TSH, but generally if they're above 40, we would like to start thyroid hormone replacement pretty quickly. So we always recommend notifying us so that we can go ahead and uh, get the repeat test to confirm uh, and then start replacement. Great. So we should be in touch with our friendly local endocrinologist. Absolutely. So the other big topic in primary care for you is short stature. And we talked a little bit about this, but what's the initial lab workup for a child with short stature? So an initial lab workup for a child with short stature would include an endocrine evaluation. So TSH with or without a free T4, depending on your concern for central, as we discussed before, an IGF-1 and an IGF-BP3, but also, and often most importantly, consists of general screening tests looking at a complete metabolic panel. So we want to see if there's any signs of kidney or liver dysfunction, a CBC looking for signs of anemia or other disease, an ESR looking for signs of inflammation, and a celiac panel. It's so interesting that celiac disease can actually present first with poor linear growth even before weight gain or other systemic symptoms. So that's an important one. So we want to rule out other non-endocrine causes. And then it sounds like if I've learned my hormones right from you, we're looking at thyroid disease and growth hormone deficiency as being some of the more common causes. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you for straightening out all this endocrine stuff for me. There are a lot of labs and hormones that are going up and down. And so I appreciate you telling us which way we should be going. I want you to give me sort of the key take-home points that I should remember from this lecture. I would say that the key take-home points here are that when you're measuring cortisol level and evaluation for adrenal insufficiency, you definitely want to get that morning level. Outside of that time or potentially illness, it's really not a reliable test. Otherwise, I would say that thyroid hormone studies can certainly be challenging to interpret and there are some intricacies to them. So please take forward what we've talked about here, but also never hesitate to reach out to an endocrinologist because we understand that there are a lot of nuances. And then finally, uh, our growth evaluation, while there are many endocrine studies on that, it's really important to be looking for general uh, screening tests in patients because there are so many causes of poor growth that we don't want to miss. Great. So I got AM cortisol. Don't be afraid to 
tell the endocrinologist that you don't know everything. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's not always endocrine. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much. And we know that we can always find you in CHOP Endocrinology by calling 1-800-TRY-CHOP if we have questions from primary care. We can also refer patients to you in clinic. And people can also find more information about you and your program at our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. It's always fun to talk about all of our feedback loops. <laughs> Maybe for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 